Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Welcome to a bonus edition of On the Tape. Today's episode is sponsored also by SoFi. I want to get a quick disclaimer out of the way. I'm going to be joined by Packy McCormick of Not Boring. You guys know Packy. He's joined us on many occasions on the tape. But here's a quick disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed by Packy McCormick of Not Boring and me, Dan Nathan of Risk Reversal Media, are solely our views and opinions and not those of SoFi or any of its affiliates. The views expressed are for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any security or other financial asset, nor an endorsement of any investment strategy. Okay, without further ado, Packy, welcome here. Thanks for joining me again. Thanks for having me, Dan. Yeah, so what we're going to do here is you put a post out on Thursday afternoon on Not Boring. It was a deep dive on Rivian. Rivian is an EV car company, actually truck and SUV company, that's coming public supposedly this week. Your post was one of your deep dive sponsored posts by SoFi, who is part of the selling group of this IPO. They are not an underwriter. They have actually no editorial say over any of the content that was written or any of the content that you and I are going to be discussing here. So we wanted to get that out of the way. So Packy, what drew you to this story? Because my understanding, the way you operate with your sponsored posts that you you only do them on companies that you're positively predisposed to like or use their products or services. What drew you to this story right here? Yeah. So, I mean, to your point, the sponsored deep dives have become kind of a way for me to prioritize all of the different companies that I might write about, particularly private ones. And Rivian's kind of right on the border. Private now, probably going to be public in the very near future. What attracted me to that story is obviously the EV market in general has been on fire. There are real companies like Tesla that may or may not be overvalued. There are companies like Nikola that were a total fraud, at least, you know, charged to be a total fraud. And I think people end up throwing out the baby with the bathwater in these cases. And so a lot of what I had read around the Rivian IPO was snark about, oh, there's this company that makes $0 in revenue that's going to go public at, I think at the time, kind of, you know, the conversation started, it was 80 billion. The range came down to 55, maybe now at 65, but, oh, this company has zero revenue and like, this is crazy. So either the whole market has totally lost its mind, all of Rivian's backers who include some of the largest pension funds and investors and Amazon and Ford, they've all lost their mind or the people are being snarky or maybe missing something. And so what I wanted to do with this piece was to look at it and say, what would you need to believe for Rivian to make sense at 55, 60, 65, wherever it ends up? Kind of what are the factors that go into this? Because it's obviously not just a meme. So I guess, yeah, putting that all all into one kind of quick sentence, there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of good things happening in EV. 
I don't want, I don't like when the kind of cynical and snarky people throw out the whole industry with the bathwater. And so, you know, I think Rivian is, is a shining example of a company that could really do something pretty amazing here. Yeah. And you mentioned memes, you know, one of the things that I think is pretty interesting about this situation in general is that SoFi, you know, they're out there, they want to democratize access to initial public offerings, IPOs here. And I think for them to sponsor a post by you, who has really spent the last year and a half since you started Not Boring, speaking to the people, speaking to the people people in a way that major investment banks really don't as it relates to kind of emerging tech stories. And and your point about snark is a really good one. And I use this, I tweeted about your post the other day is like for me as a Wall Street guy for 25 years and a pundit on CNBC for the last 12, you know, I'm almost programmed to be a bit snarky, to be a bit cynical about some of this stuff. So that's one of the reasons why I've really enjoyed reading all of your posts over the last year, year and a half, that sort of thing, and have the pleasure of talking about them. So, you know, as far as what you tried to do with the post also is say, okay, I'm speaking to a retail investor. You haven't had access to this in private markets. You're not a massive pension fund. You're not a big auto company that might have an interest in licensing this tech or receiving these electric vans for delivery. You're just like me trying to figure out a story, whether we're in a bubble or not, whether valuations make sense, how to think about valuation in an emerging technical field like this. So I thought that was an interesting part about SoFi's interest in having you sponsor this. All right, let's get into the EV landscape right now, because this is one of the things in a stock market that is all-time highs with public markets that are white hot right now, and they're looking for the next, next thing. It seems like the EV market, despite very few ways to express a view in the public markets, has just kind of taken over a big narrative as it relates to tech. What's going on with electric vehicles? Why has Tesla you know, just gone up 50% in like a month or a month and a half, gaining a half a trillion dollars in market cap. I think it topped out last week at 1.2 trillion. It's unbelievable, right? So I think there are two things happening with EVs. One is just the sheer force of kind of will and personality of Elon Musk. I wrote in the piece, but I think I bought Tesla stock for the first time in 2013. Back then, everyone was shorting Tesla and saying that it was overvalued and overhyped. And it's multiplied by 50x at least since I made that investment. And so at this point, people just don't want to bet against Elon Musk. And I think that's one of the things I think, you know, what happened a couple of weeks ago is that they came in ahead on deliveries again. And so anytime I think in the EV market right now, people are looking for positive signal. And so anytime you either at least table stakes kind of meet your delivery targets or even better uh, exceed your delivery targets, there's going to be a little bit of a pop because I think the market has kind of come to believe that this is a really hard thing to do. And so if you can actually do what you say you're going to do, that's that's great. The other is a very real tailwind here, right? Where Goldman just uh, increased their forecast of the penetration that electric vehicles will have worldwide, I think led by the Biden administration in the US and the EU's stance on, on emissions. Countries are setting aggressive EV targets over the next, call it 20 years. And so you're looking at an opportunity to really take a fleet of cars that people are driving and replace it with a whole new kind of category. Obviously, the incumbents are going after that opportunity, although maybe a little bit more slowly and with less sexy a product. But there's only a few real credible companies that are pure play EVs going after this opportunity. It's a $4 trillion market of which, you know, by 2045, according to Goldman, somewhere 
just shy of 50% globally will be electric vehicles. So companies that are in the lead there have a really good opportunity to build very big businesses. All right. So help me understand this. And I saw that data. It's in your post here. And that's going to be rising pretty quickly here. I think they were talking about 11% of global sales by 2025 will be EV. And then it gets basically to about 50%, as you said, that's their forecast for 2040. Right now, Tesla has north of $1 trillion in market cap as we're recording this here, and they have low single-digit global auto market share. And they're actually going to have declining market share as some of this other competitors come into the market here, but yet their market cap is over 80% of the global auto market cap. So it, this is one of the reasons why people are skeptical because it just, it screams bubble here. But if all of a sudden now you have opportunities to invest in alternatives that seem maybe just as likely to be able to succeed in a very nascent market, is that part of the story here? I think that's part of the story. I mean, I, I think generally you just don't want to bet against Elon Musk, whether you know that's your if your bull case for Rivian is that they'll overtake Tesla, that's probably not it. I think what Rivian has done really well is if you look at the percentage of auto sales by type of vehicle in the US, trucks and SUVs, kind of like the light truck category is going to make up something like 78% of sales by 2025. And so Rivian has said, instead of trying to build a sexier sports car, which they actually tried to do early in their life, but instead of trying to build a sexier EV sports car, let's just go after that huge chunk of people in that 78% who are, who are driving trucks and SUVs. And so what they've done is build a car that can go zero to 60 in three seconds and has, I think, like ballistic missile covering, covering its motor such that it can go off-road just as well as any vehicle. You look at the reviews on these things and like Motor Trend is the most incredible truck we've ever driven. Kelly Blue Book, most incredible truck we've ever driven. Marquez Brownlee, who's a tech reviewer, most incredible truck and it's going to change the way that people look at trucks. And so I think what they were really smart to do was to say like, look, here's this wide open category where we don't for a little while have to compete directly with Elon Musk and Tesla, we're going to go after a group of adventurous outdoors people who've been underserved here, but who clearly care about the environment because they spend so much of their time outdoors. Let's serve that market really well. You know, it's interesting that they're going for that because, you know, the logical thing would just be competing in what's worked already, right? So the Model S put Tesla on the map with a high-end sedan, you know, competing with the Germans and, and, and you know, at around $100,000 price point. Lucid, another publicly traded EV company that just started shipping their car is a high-end sedan. It's called the Air. It looks amazing, but it's $169,000 off the lot here, you know? And so I think that to compete like that on the high-end sedan, they're really competing, I think, with the Tesla Plaid now, doesn't seem like it makes a whole heck of a lot of sense. So that's one of the things that kind of attracted me to the story as I started reading your post and doing a little more. And I will tell you this, I put down a deposit for the Rivian the R1S, which is the SUV, it says it's going to be starting to ship early next year. And for any of you guys who think I'm just a poser, I put down a deposit two years ago for the Ford Mustang Mach-E fully electric small SUV. And when I got a call in March that my car was in, I took delivery of it and I love it. I'm just telling you, like I'm the real deal. And I said to my wife last night, I said, listen, 
this whole EV thing has not been great. The infrastructure is not particularly built out at this point. And we're going to get to that, right? I said, but we got another one coming here. So, um, and we live in New York City and it's really not been easy to be very frank with you, but I'm really excited about this truck. I legitimately wanted to buy a Rivian for myself and I was like, I can't find parking in the city for a regular car, let alone if I have to find parking next to a, a charger. How do you even do that? My garage in the city, I had six chargers in one garage that happened to be 50 yards from my apartment, and it was brilliant. And then that garage shut down, and now I have to go to special supercharging sort of stations. There's one in New York. So it's not easy. And I think that's a big part of the bull case, I think, for any of these companies that are competing against Tesla, because if they are going to align themselves with a different standard of charging to make up some ground, they are really going to have to accelerate the charging process because range anxiety is a thing. I've had this car now for like six months. And, you know, it's nice that I haven't had to pump a gallon of gas and, and do that whole thing. But when you're getting to the end of a charge or you th- trying to think about how you're going to be driving over the course of the next week or so, you have to plan it out. So it's taking a little work. I think that is a urban thing. I think for people who have garages at home and, you know, that, that sort of thing, it's a piece of cake. You get home, you plug it in and it's a done deal. So, Packy, in your post, you linked to some of the reviews. That was one of the things that really kind of got me interested in this truck. I am all in on EVs from here on out. I am waiting for that infrastructure to be built, but that's a big part of the Rivian story. Talk to me about some of these reviews. Were there any bad reviews? And the ones that you just referenced, they seem to have been glowing. They were glowing. So, you know, there were three that I included in the piece. There was Motor Trends review, which, and I'll quote here, said the 2022 Rivian R1T is the most remarkable pickup we've ever driven. And again, this is in the category with like the three best selling cars in the country. And this is the most remarkable one ever. Kelly Blue Book, which is a subsidiary of Cox, Cox Automotive, which is invested in Rivian, but you know, I don't think that influenced it at all had similarly glowing things to say. And then Marquez Brownlee, tech reviewer, called it, quote, the most impressive electric truck I have ever seen and, quote, the most interesting of all of the EV companies. So people were in love with it. I couldn't find any bad reviews. What I thought was particularly fascinating as well was YouTube comments are normally a pretty snarky place. On all three of those YouTube videos, all the comments were glowing. People were excited about it. I talked to somebody offline the other day who'd met RJ, the CEO of Rivian. Couldn't have said enough nice things about him. This is one of those really interesting ones where I think after Nicola, you expect to dig below the surface and be like, all right, well, here's all the skeletons and here's why this will never work. And it seems like everyone's rooting for this company and the reviewers really liked it. And I mean, I think the things that they liked were the fact that you have this electric truck that's quiet, that goes fast when you're on the road and then you get on the mountains and I think they talk about just like the torque and the grip and everything that's happening as you're doing off-roading things that you expect to do in a Hummer or a pickup truck or like a, a custom built vehicle for off-roading, you're doing in an electric car uh, and then it can perform well on the open road as well. That seems to be what people like, plus a bunch of just like little features. They have a speaker that is charging the whole time. That's like a big ass speaker that you can pull out and just like play at your campsite because they know they're going for adventurous people. There's this tunnel in the middle of the truck that you can put skis or lumber or whatever. And that just kind of goes through the bottom of the R1T. So there's a bunch of little features. I think it's, it's a testament to figuring out who your customer is and then just building for that very specific group of customers. And so one of the questions would be how big is that group of customers? But I, I think if they need to hit, call it, 200,000, maybe 250,000 deliveries by 2025 to make sense at these kind of current prices. I think there are, you know, 250,000 people in the country who would like a, an EV that can operate off-road and on-road. 
Yeah, no doubt. And so you just mentioned the founder, CEO, RJ Scringe. I mean, talk to me a little bit. I, mean, I feel like I know nothing about him. I mean, we were inundated with Elon Musk, you know, every which way, you know, all, all day and night on Twitter. The media is fascinated with him. You had a really interesting screenshot in there of RJ's um, LinkedIn. It's basically two degrees at MIT and just Rivian. That's his professional and academic career here. What's the deal with this guy? Who is he? Um, and he seems to be the anti-Musk. He is the anti-Musk. So this guy grew up in Florida. Apparently, he had been working on cars since he was a young kid. His dad was a mechanic who made all sorts of inventions for the Department of Defense. And when RJ was in high school, he said he wanted to start a car company, which every kid loves cars, and that makes total sense. But then I think he went to Rensselaer Polytech and then to MIT for a master's and then to MIT for a PhD at this, you know, the special kind of automotive program they have there. There's a bunch of quotes that I read from different professors who are like, yeah, obviously everyone here says they want to start a car company and nobody starts a car company. And this guy did. He left school. He went back to his dad's workshop down in Florida and his dad's workshop was called Mainstream. And so RJ called the company at first Mainstream Motors, wanted to build sexy little coupe and an ugly little hatchback and like tried a bunch of different things along the way. And he went through this cycle where he would develop a prototype, take it to investors, try to raise money on the prototype, fail, go back, tell his team to design a new prototype, and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. I think he and his dad had to mortgage their home to finance the company because that didn't work. They got funding from the state of Florida at one point. And then he found himself through an MIT connection in the middle of the Saudi Arabian desert with some potential investors who owned car dealerships throughout the Middle East and, and Asia. And one of the founder's son said, give us something that's bit of a hybrid between a Toyota dune buggy and a truck and a nice sedan. Like give us something that we can like cruise in in the desert with. And so he went back, uh, got funding from them, designed kind of like the original idea for something that might become Rivian, walked into his board meeting one day and was like, you know what, by the way, I decided that this is going to be an electric vehicle. We don't need to discuss this any further. We're doing this. Turns out in college, He put himself through a multi-month experiment where he tried to figure out if there was a way that he could have zero carbon footprint. And so he took cold showers, brought his silverware to him after lunch, biked everywhere instead of taking any transportation. Like What ended up becoming Rivian is really a marriage of this guy's love for cars and his love for the environment. And so from there on, they were able to kind of raise a bunch of money from a bunch of blue chip investors and build what would become Rivian, obviously an incredibly expensive and time consuming pursuit. My other favorite quote, and then we'll we'll stop on, on RJ, but the New York Times interviewed him about kind of his single minded focus on building a car company. And he was like, yeah, this company gets 100% of my time minus my family. I think my wife and child get 5% of my time, which you know, on one hand is impressive obsession. I told my wife about it and she was like, I hate this guy. So <laughs> you know, like, uh, I, I know there have been, you know, kind of it, at least allegations there of kind of a bro culture. So probably everybody has their double-edged sword and his is just a single-minded focus on building a car. So it's interesting where we are right now. I mean, like, like you said, the incumbents have bought in, governments have bought in to this move towards EV. And so you have a guy, like you say, who's singularly focused on building this company. And it smacks a little bit of some of the criticisms of Musk over the last 10 years that he's also the CEO chairman of SpaceX. He started Boring.co with a, what was a flamethrower company or something. 
something like that. He really is pretty active in a lot of other major corporations and endeavors. And this guy's like heads down, just kind of building the thing that Tesla is not, if you will. So talk to me about some of these other investors. You mentioned the one where he had to go to the desert to get that funding. But Amazon, it was disclosed in their S1, has a 20% stake in the company. Ford has a 12% stake in the company. Is this one of those sorts of scenarios where does it kind of put a floor on the valuation a little bit? Because those guys are not in it for the IPO pop. They're in it for the long haul and they see plenty of strategic um, opportunities. Obviously, Amazon has a a 100,000 order, I think, over the next five years or so for Rivian to deliver these EDVs, electric delivery vehicles. And then Ford, the possibility of them licensing some of this technology. Talk to me about those as strategic partners. Yeah. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. I think between the two of them, Amazon owns 20% of the company. Apparently, Jeff Bezos flew out to Michigan and spent a whole day while he was still the CEO of Amazon at the factory uh, and decided to invest then and put in 100,000 vehicle orders. So between now and 2025, Amazon gets the first 100,000 vans that come off the lot. And then they have a two-year option to extend. So this could be a really long-term relationship where any one of these vans that Rivian makes, Amazon is just consuming. On the Ford side, there's no specifics in terms of what what technology it may or may not license. I think part of the, the rationale behind the decision was just to kind of get a first look at the technology that the Rivian was developing. Interesting piece of the Rivian story, I think, is that this is a fully vertically integrated company from designing their own chassis, own battery within it, their own charging network, every piece of kind of R&D that goes into that car, they've designed themselves. And so I think Ford wants a first look and then Ford may say, great, we're going to license the battery for our EVs, or we're going to license you know, one of the components that Rivian has developed. And we want the first look on, on that. Uh, so those are interesting ones. And then I, I also thought it was interesting that T. Rowe Price just came in three rounds in a row and just backed up the truck on Rivian, so to speak. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating, though. You know, Ford with a 12% stake. I mean, they are the stock is up 50% just in two months. And I think, it, you know, a lot of investors thought this was like a mid single digit stake and with the S1 and it really increased. So the stock is trading at multi-year highs here. And Ford has obviously accelerated their plans for their electric vehicle fleet and they're introducing a truck next year, the F-150 Lightning, which has been a big part of the bull case. And you can see some comparisons, but really the F-150 is at a much lower price point. It actually is a very different consumer, I suspect. The R1T that has already started to roll out, so that is the the pickup truck, that is like a $75,000 truck. So to your point, it's more of a higher end mass affluent. Is that what you would call it? Maybe offering- Right. Yeah. Yeah. So Ford GM right now have nearly 80 and $86 billion market caps respectively. Okay. So if this thing comes, the S1 says they're going to raise $8 million by selling 135 million shares at a price between 57 and 62. Now that can change. That can change a lot over the next few days as this thing gets priced. What are your thoughts on that coming to market? Basically pre-revenue with, let's say, upwards of a $60 billion market cap. We know that Lucid, that just started shipping the air, as we just talked about, also has a market cap of over $60 billion, and these are some of their first revenues. But the losses have been pretty large, and that's one of the reasons for such a large offering here. Tell me a little bit about your thoughts on this as you kind of did some of the work on that. Yes, I think you, again, you have to break this one down into two pieces. The market generally, which 
may have lost its mind, right? But it's not our job to time the markets losing its mind or getting its mind back or any of that. So the way that I tried to, to analyze this one was by just looking at the multiples that a Lucid and a Tesla are getting in the market. It's a sign of a crazy market that essentially a hardware company, uh, a company that's making a physical product, and like you said, losing billions and billions of dollars to do it, is getting valued on a multiple of 20, 25 sales. But I think that Lucid, after it made its first deliveries, started trading at 4.3x 2025 projected sales. So if you apply that to something like a Rivian, what you need to believe is that they'll deliver about 192,000 trucks and vehicles, including the Amazon vehicles, by 2025. And so then you have to work backwards from there into what's their production capacity. So right now they have a plant in normal Illinois that will be able to do 150,000 vehicles per year. They're looking at another plant in Texas that would be able to do another 150 to 200,000. And they're looking at a plant in Europe, which would be able to do another 150 or so thousand. So on the capacity front, they'll have enough. On the demand side, they have, I think, 55,000 pre-orders from consumers, uh, including yourself now. So maybe 55,001 now. Uh, (laughs) And I'm sure that number goes up with all the press around the IPO. It made you dig in and buy. And I think that'll happen uh, with a lot more folks here. They have 100,000 from Amazon and new orders coming in every day. I think they grew their pre-orders 14% uh, between September and October of this year. So on the demand side, it seems actually fairly likely that they'll be able to do in that kind of 200,000 range by 2025. On the supply side, it seems like they'll be able to meet that demand. And so that would be in this current market, how you could talk yourself into you know that kind of price range that they're thinking about going public at maybe this week, maybe next week. I guess the other thing to consider though is things go wrong. There are chip shortages that might be an issue. The more kind of technologically advanced the car is, the more reliant on chips you are, the more the global chip shortages that we're having could could kill production, even if you have the plants lined up and ready to go. That would be an issue. If you can't roll out the charging network as fast as possible, maybe that slows the demand side as people get that range anxiety that you talked about and get worried there. There are a million different things that can go wrong when you're producing a physical product. So that would be, so just kind of purely on kind of looking at the supply and demand numbers in the in this market, those are the types of things that could go wrong. But if you assume that even you know things get cut in half in terms of 2025 EV revenue multiple, there's still, I think, a path to them producing 400,000 vehicles and selling them in 2025. And that's what you'd have to believe in order to kind of justify the valuation. Yeah. And so to believe that Tesla in 2021 has already delivered, I think this is in your post, 627,000 cars. So they're hoping to get to like a, a million, which would be a massive milestone for them. And if you think about it, Elon Musk, the history of him has been over promising and under delivering on so many different levels, but the market really did care for a while. And if you think of the lows in March of 2020, when, you know, we were in this black hole and no one had any idea of what demand would look like for consumer products or anything like that. You know, that stock had like a $60 billion market cap. And what did we just say? It's north of 1.1 trillion right now. So the market clearly doesn't care anymore about a lot of those projections. It just seems like they're really focused on the total addressable market here and some of the initiatives to kind of grow this market share globally here. So my question to you, though, is how important do you think this IPO is? 
is from a marketing perspective for Rivian here, because one of the real pillars of success for Tesla has been that it wasn't a GM, it wasn't a Ford, it wasn't a Honda, that sort of thing. It was something kind of new and fresh. And even on the low end, you know, like when, when you look at the Model 3 or the Model X, that sort of thing, these are cars that are priced for, I don't know, between like thirty five and, and $50,000. The average car, I think, in America costs about thirty seven, thirty eight, or something like that. But people are identifying with something that's different than most every other car on the road. I think that's right. And, and you might be able to look at a Ford F-150 Lightning and tell that it's an EV, maybe not. When you look at a Rivian or when you look at a Tesla, you know that you're looking at an electric vehicle. And I think that matters both on the consumer side and probably on the investor side. Right? I think a lot of the demand for these will come from the ESG portfolios. I wonder if that's maybe part of the Tira price logic is that this is a, an ESG play. And so I think both in terms of demand for the shares and in terms of demand for the cars, some of it is just signaling that this is something that people care about and want to ha- kind of have happen in the world and are willing to put their money where the mouth is on that. Yeah. And that's interesting that you make the point about ESG. You think there's a scarcity of stories out there where funds that are going to be increasingly focused on these sorts of investments um, have to look, and maybe this is just kind of a get in early and often situation. Maybe. I mean, like before the Nikola thing blew up, you might've been able to say the same thing there, but I think, you know, with the reviews and with the early demand that we're seeing for Rivian's product, I think the combination of an ESG play with something that actually has a credible product and a clear potential growth story is is an attractive offering to investors. All right. So let's talk about growth. One of the biggest themes in, in all of tech over the last few years has been recurring revenue. So you have this segment in there and you're talking about some of these recurring revenue opportunities. Kind of lay them out for us because it's not something I feel like has been part of the Tesla story. It really has been like a production and, and unit ship story. Talk to me about some of these cloud recurring revenue opportunities. And are they real? You know, this isn't easy stuff to kind of get narrative going in front of, let's say, an IPO. But when you when you did your work, do you find that this is a real potential revenue stream for these guys? Yeah, I started the piece talking about kind of McKinsey writing about this opportunity globally, where if they're, you know, in the next few years will be $4 trillion worth of auto demand, they foresee that there's going to be $1.7 trillion worth of annual revenue for these kind of add-on and recurring services. And so for somebody like a Rivian, that comes to play in a few ways. So there's their cloud offering and the operating system that they'll sell for a fleet, which will be, I guess, exclusively to Amazon to start, but then over time selling fleet management software to companies that buy their, their EDVs. That may just be something that you have to purchase. It may be something that ends up making your life a lot more convenient. And so the way that Rivian looks at it is, I think, an average of $67,900 per vehicle that they sell over 10 years in that subscription revenue over time. I think some of the bigger chunks of that probably include the fact that Rivian, in a partnership with Chase, will finance the vehicles and they'll do telematics-based insurance, which kind of seems, the more you think about it, like an absolute no-brainer that if you know exactly how fast this truck is driving and how safe the driver is and can charge somebody a lower insurance premium because you know how they drive reduce the total cost of ownership, but still take revenue in the form of premiums yourself, that's a good opportunity for both the driver and for the the company. So I think probably a bunch of that revenue comes from just the financial side of being able to to offer both financing and insurance to consumers. And then the cloud stuff on top is an interesting potential add-on, but I wouldn't be investing just based on its opportunity to sell software. 
Let's talk about real quickly the mechanics of an IPO like this. So you just mentioned T. Rowe in every round. I mean, it is a who's who of massive pension funds and mutual funds. And we probably have a lot of crossover funds, right? You know, I mean, it just seems like this is like everybody who wanted to own this in the private markets had their opportunity to do it other than individual investors. So here we are again, this is bringing you back to the start of this conversation. SoFi part of the selling group, they have access to this. So the way it works is, is that the S1 comes out and they have this range and you can put in for, if you're a client of SoFi's with a limit up until that range, or you can't put a price limit, but basically the high end of the range is your limit. Now that limit's going to change and you have the ability to kind of confirm or kind of take yourself out of that thing. It's really important to understand this. When you are a hedge fund or a large mutual fund and you're finally getting access to a hot story, you want to get in on that initial price, right? Where it's going to be listed and then all the other demand that comes on afterwards, that's that IPO pop. You spent some time talking about that. Bill Gurley, a very prominent and successful VC of Benchmark has been uh, very critical of the IPO pop, just basically saying that companies are giving away a lot of money just so investment banks can make a bunch of their big clients happy. So when we think about this, I think it's really important for investors as they're going to increasingly, individual investors, as they are in going to get increasingly access to IPOs, they have to be price sensitive because, you know, a lot of hot deals may not work the way they had in the past because so many investors now in the public markets, right, are getting in earlier while they're still private. I think that's 100% right. And so I wrote about a little bit the fact that I think in tech, it's like an average of 30% IPO pop on the first day going back to 1980. So chances are in historically, that if you were an individual who were buying from the institutions who actually bought at the IPO price, you were buying more expensive shares. The point of that was not to say, hey, retail investors, get in and, and make sure that you get the pop and then sell it. The point was, to your point, be price disciplined, understand what you're buying and what price you're comfortable at. And if it's coming to market at a price that you are comfortable with, then buy it direct as opposed to buying it from the institutions at potentially a 15, 30% price increase. Yeah. I I mean, listen, the way this market's going right now, it has the risk of being much higher. So you really want to actually think about if it comes at 70 or 80 billion, the likelihood we just made the case while it's going to take some time to grow into that valuation, it makes it that much harder and it makes it that much susceptible to big drawdowns. Right. And so I think when when I think about a speculative story like this, and it's really only speculative in my opinion, because of the valuation, I think you have to think about, I don't go in with my full position right here. I say, all right, I want to have this much exposure and I really like this story and I may want to buy this car. And if I had bought Tesla stock when I bought my Model S back in 2013, I wouldn't be working right now. You know, that sort of thing. If that's the case, you can't go all in though, right? You're going to have volatility. You're going to have these opportunities. And I'll just make one point here. Amazon.com went public in like, I think 1997. And back then, these companies obviously were pre-earnings, earnings per share, that sort of thing. They were considered considered to be very speculative. And it was one of the best performing stocks, obviously, in the late 90s. From its highs in 2000, during the dot-com implosion, 
Amazon lost 95% of its equity value. I mean, I saw it. I witnessed this. You've never seen anything like it. You didn't think that things could go as low as it was going in 01 and 02. It made new lows every day, all right? And then in the financial crisis, it had gotten right back up to those prior highs, believe it or not. And this was in 2007 at the highs to its lows in 2008 or 2009. It lost 65% of its equity value, all right? And it's had about a half a dozen 30% peak to trough decline. So what I'm saying here is the volatility and speculative names that have to grow into this sort of thing, it's a feature, not a bug of them. And that's why you cannot be buying sentiment highs with your full position. That's my personal view about any equity. And and I don't need a disclaimer on that. That's just, that is the PSA right there. Amen to that. You saw it. I got one of the cynical kind of tech journalists wrote a response piece. So this was like, you know, this post that Packy wrote could be the sign of a bubble or whatever. We all should go into this market knowing that we're at all-time highs nearly across the board, that multiples have gotten much higher than they've been in the past, and that there's a very, very real risk for drawdown across all sorts of asset classes, crypto, stocks within equities, potentially you know EVs or tech more generally, or that is like the table stakes assumption that you need to go into this with. The point of this is to say that just because it feels like maybe the market has lost its mind in some sense doesn't mean that you can't be smart and understand the fundamentals about what you're buying. Yeah. And I would also say is that being in there on day one, having being price sensitive, that makes sense because you might get it at the price that you really care about. And then you actually have more information about how it trades afterwards. And then in a few weeks, a bunch of analysts are going to kind of initiate the company and they're going to do some deeper dives on it. And you're going to have a lot more information. So the idea of just kind of being armed with that information, and as you say, in all your posts, do your own work a little bit, you got to do your own work. You can't rely on other people to help make you money and these sorts of things or or make you money. You can rely on them to help you. All right, I want to end with this because I thought this was really interesting. I've been reading, again, you're not boring stuff and I love you know everything you've done in crypto and NFTs. And, and you ended this post with this. You said, we're buying social status, entertainment, education, and a digital asset to show off. NFTs and tokens more broadly have proven to be true. Rivian, like Tesla, might be a way to express and support a belief that we can unfuck the planet and get better products. All right, so I I love all your crypto stuff. I love your NFT stuff. And it actually really speaks to the way you think about risk a little bit too, because I think you almost want to think of this as kind of a crypto token, if you will, this equity that's going to be listed uh, very soon on the NASDAQ. Explain that point to us. Take us out, Packy McCormick. Yeah. So I got to give, I mean, Chris Saka is, is where I stole the unfuck the planet thing from. He has lower carbon capital. And I absolutely love that as kind of a, a mantra for investing in climate tech. But the point that I made, and I made this a year ago, I think, in a post called Software is Eating the Markets, and I think it's it's proven to be broadly true that with more and more retail investors coming into the market, professional investors have a fiduciary responsibility to their LPs and to their investors and to their shareholders to really kind of like crunch the numbers and run the numbers and keep everything very, very tight. And so what a professional investor is buying is largely, maybe they're trading sentiment, momentum and all of that, but largely they're buying some discounted future cash flows. As more and more retails enter the market, for better or worse, I think what people are buying, and you can see this in Tesla, you can see this in cryptos, you can see this in NFTs, Yes, they're buying a financial asset and they're buying you know the, the present value of future cash flows and all that, but they're also buying 
in this case, maybe I want to understand what's going on in EVs. And so I buy a little bit of Rivian just so I have some skin in the game and can understand the market better. Or I want to show off that I own shares in Rivian because it says something about who I am. Retail investors are less, I get, rational is the wrong word because if you're pricing all of this in and this is what you're getting out of the purchase that you're making, it may be a perfectly rational decision, but it's not as spreadsheet driven as a professional investor might be. And I think that probably on the retail side, you'll see a little bit of, of that here as well, that buying buying a, a particular asset is about more than buying the financial cash flows to this particular group of investors. Yeah, no, I agree, man. Well, listen, I really appreciated reading your note. It was called Rivian, the most remarkable adventure. You can find it on Packy's blog, Not Boring. Follow him on Twitter. Packy, thanks a lot for doing this. Thanks, SoFi, for giving you the opportunity to write this deep dive and me to talk about it with you. I learned a lot about it. I even put in a, an order for the SUV, and I'm really excited about that. So hopefully that'll come sooner or later. And sorry for it. I really enjoyed the Mustang Mach-E, but I got to try this Rivian out. I, I want to ride when you get it. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us here, and uh, we'll we'll see you soon. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.